I once heard of a fellow by the name of Pease. Yes, you, you heard that right. Pease, like the vegetable. P-E-A-S was his name. Poor guy, I don't know what his parents were thinking or why they felt so cruel to the man, but that was his name. And with a name like that, I'm sure you can imagine the jokes that were cracked at his expense. It's a rough time to be in middle school if you were Pease. But at the end of his life, Pease had a simple request for his gravestone. He'd written a poem that he wanted engraved, and, and here's what Pease wrote. You can see it on the screen. He said, this is not Pease, this is only his pod. Pease has shelled out and gone home to God. <laughs> I guess it's making the most of a rough situation. It's pretty funny, pretty clever to think of, of Pease there, and you know, we, can, we can laugh at these things, but the reality is gravestones are pretty significant, and this guy is remembered for quite some time because of this. And one of my mentors in high school told me that it was wise to regularly think of my gravestone. He said I needed to think about the dates that I was born and when I might die, and then that little piece of punctuation in the middle, the dash. He said, always think about the dash. Because everything that happens in your life, he would say, that those are the things that make up the dash. And by thinking of the dash on your gravestone, and the gravestone as a whole, it helps you to live well. It was good advice he gave me. It's good advice for all of us to consider. And here in Genesis 25, we've come to the conclusion of Abraham's life. We've come to his death. After five months together, we've come to the end. We've heard 16 sermons on his life and what it means to live by faith in the gap. We've seen in his life that there's often a gap between, on the one hand, the promises of God and what our current circumstances are right now. And we're wondering, how do I live by faith in that gap? And so this sermon concludes our series, Living in the Gap. And starting next Sunday, we'll take a break from Genesis for a bit. And in January, we'll pick back up with, with Jacob and with Esau. And so as we conclude this portion of Genesis, this section of the series, uh, I want to take a little bit different approach. And so what, what Hebrews 11 does is it gives us a snapshot of Abraham's life. You, you might say what Hebrews 11 gives us is the dash on his gravestone, the high-level overview. And so what I want us to do is I want us to remember some of the big lessons that we've seen throughout this series, and I want us to remember how they equip us to live by faith in the gap. That's what we want to do this morning. And so we're not skipping Genesis 25. No, we're seeing how we came to Abraham's death, and there's actually some really cool nuggets in Genesis 25. It's just that I won't get to those nuggets until our last point this morning. So you maybe want to stick a bookmark or a, one of those connect cards or an envelope or something you've got in Genesis 25 and flip over to Hebrews 11 where we'll sort of see the gap and then come back at the end of Abraham's life to chapter 25 where you see the actual, um, his death and the, and the gravestone there. All right. Now, if you've got the Pew Bible, Hebrews 11 where we'll be turning is page 1007. Uh, so you can flip over there, and like I said, just keep a, a finger in Genesis 25 or a bookmark or something, and we'll come back to that uh, on, on our last point. But Hebrews 11, page 1007, and I just want to read three verses from Hebrews 11 that sort of help us to see the big picture of Abraham's life. I hear pages turning. That's a beautiful sound. I love to hear that, the rustling there. Uh, but picking up in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, here's what we read. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. 
And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. If you were to grab one overarching theme for this whole series, living in the gap, where there's a gap between God's promises and our present circumstances, what we would see, you would say the overarching theme of the whole thing is this, great is the faithfulness of God. That's how you live in the gap. You have a firm grip on the faithfulness of God and how great it is. And we've tried to instill that week after week. I hope you've heard that of clinging to the promises of God. Great is the faithfulness of God. We've brought back into our song list, great is thy faithfulness. This morning we sang, my soul will wait. You can only wait knowing that God is faithful. We sang of his faithfulness to hold us fast, his faithfulness to go to the cross. Great is the faithfulness of God. That's the overarching theme, and we'll break it down into three smaller points this morning of seeing how, one, Abraham left home, two, Abraham lived as a sojourner, And third, Abraham looked forward. Abraham left home, lived as a sojourner, looked forward. Looking back at Hebrews 11 and verse 8 is where I start with Abraham leaving home. Here's what verse 8 says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So in that culture, we often call that the ancient Near East. In that culture... Identity for any individual was heavily tied to where you were from. That's that's how you identify yourself. And so leaving home meant receiving a new identity. So when we say Abraham left home, what we're saying is Abraham received a new identity. Abraham's identity is no longer defined by where he's from. No, that was the cultural norm. But now he receives a new identity defined by his faith in God. And one of the most important verses in this entire section of Scripture we spent the last five months walking through is Genesis 15, 6. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. His new identity. I'm righteous on the basis of my faith. My identity is grounded in my faith in God, not in any other circumstance. And the rest of Genesis 15, like if if I could just be... It's probably not good for pastors to say this, but I'll say it anyways. I have a, like favorites in the Bible. Genesis 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Because you see him receiving this identity by faith, and then it's the process of, well, how did he receive this identity? In Genesis 15, I'll just give the, the quick summary. It, it tells how in the ancient Near East, a covenant was made. It's a serious and a solemn agreement. That's what, what a covenant is. And, and these guys, they weren't messing around. So back then, what they would do is that you'd take a couple of animals, and you'd slaughter them, and then you'd cut them in half and separate them, and it sort of makes an aisleway through that you could walk through. And if you're making a covenant with someone, an agreement, you, these animals have been slaughtered, cut in half, separated, and you walk through the middle, and then you get to the end, and you shake hands, per se. And in essence, what you're saying is, If one of you doesn't keep up your end of the deal, you don't do what the covenant says you're supposed to do, may you be treated like these animals. May you be slaughtered and cut apart. Like, you don't don't make many covenants like that in life. You see, see, when I I say it was a serious business, a solemn agreement, like, they they were not messing around. 
That was, that was how covenants were made back then at that time. What happens in Genesis 15 is actually different. God puts Abraham to sleep. The animals are slaughtered, cut in half, separated, and God walks through for himself and for Abraham. Well, Abraham's asleep. In essence, what God is saying is, I'm gonna keep up my end of the bargain, Abraham, but if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I'll take on the curse like you should have. I'll be slaughtered. I'll be torn apart to pay for you not keeping up your end of the deal. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so you see this foreshadowing of the cross where Jesus would come and be killed, slaughtered, see the destined day arise, the willing sacrifice we just sang about, where because humans would disobey God, rebel against him, God would take on the curse. Jesus would be torn apart on our behalf to give this new identity by faith to Abraham and to any who would believe in him. And so it's an incredibly clear and vivid picture of the gospel right here in Genesis 15, how you receive a new identity by faith. Maybe I use that, that word gospel and it's new to you. You're not sure exactly what is meant by that. I, I once heard a pastor describe it uh, in these four statements that you, you hear me parrot pretty frequently around here. It's God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. That sums up the gospel in a, in a clear, succinct way, that God is holy, made everything that is in the universe, made it good, but we're not holy. We've rebelled, we've gone our own way, and we're separated from God forever because of that, and we deserve judgment for our sins. And there's no way we could fix this situation that we broke. So God is holy, we are not, but here's the good news. Jesus came and he saves. He went to the cross to receive the punishment, as Genesis 15 would talk about, as we sang about, so that we could have forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God. And after that, Christ becomes our life. Now, you might be here this morning and say, Justin, I've heard about that before, but I've never made that decision. I've never chosen to follow Jesus and ask him to forgive me of my sins and make Christ everything in my life. That's the first step for you. In seeing Abraham, how do I live by faith? You have to receive a new identity in Christ where your life is defined and devoted to Jesus above all else. And there's all kinds of identities in the world that we try to lean into. And the world tells us will be satisfying and bring joy. And then none of them, none of them measure up. I'm reminded of U2's hit song, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. That's kind of what we're like. We can keep looking. We can climb the highest mountain. Jared, I'm not going to ask you to sing the rest of it for us, but I know you could. We're not going to find what we're looking for until that identity is grounded by faith in Christ. And to the Christians in the room, there's, there's a way that you can receive this identity in Christ, but not really embrace it wholly, not delight in it. Like there, there's all kinds of identities that we claim for ourselves. Right? There's, the, there's the stated identities, the ones that sort of go in your, in your Instagram bio that have to do with your family and your interest and your profession. And so you walk up as, hey, I'm Justin, my wife's Emily, I have three kids, pastor at Parkside Bible Church, and you'll find me on the golf course if I have some free time. You know, those sorts of identities that, that we all can think of ourselves by. But I think most of us have identities that are unstated, that are probably far more powerful in how we view ourselves. So on the positive side, we might say things like, 
Again, we wouldn't actually say it. You're not actually going to go up to introduce somebody this way, but hey, I'm Justin. I'm educated. I'm a hard worker. I'm a provider. I'm a good person. I'm not judgmental like those other people. I've not had that introduction before. Maybe, maybe you guys have experienced that. But isn't that more how we think of ourselves sometimes? It's not the things we publicly say, but yeah, this is who I am. This is my identity. But if I can drill a little deeper, even beyond the positive unstated ones, there's the negative unstated ones, where the inner self-critic says, no, this is who you really are. You're a failure. You're stupid. How could you say something like that? You're ugly. You're not good enough. You failed too many times. And those identity markers end up gripping us and, and they shape how we see ourselves and how we live in the world. And Abraham, like us, like us, had plenty of opportunities to define himself by his failures. He lied about his wife, Sarah, numerous times. He didn't trust God to provide a son, so he reverted to adultery with Hagar. Here in the final chapter of his life, he's like supposed to be riding out into the sunset. He takes another wife and has like 12 kids. Like if somebody wanted to be defined by their failures, Abraham is right there to say, yeah, I could do that. He believed the Lord and was credited to him as righteousness, and that was his new identity. And it's a reminder to us that the process of becoming like Jesus, sanctification is the theological term, that's a messy process. It's not just a straight line up and to the right. It's a jagged line. And it requires grace through faith to continue growing to be more like Jesus. And it reminds us that any attempt at behavior change, or we want our behaviors to be different, any attempt at behavior change without identity change, like a real change of identity, is not going to work. You have to have a change in your fundamental identity. Who am I before God in order to see lasting behavior change? Behavioral change without an identity change is like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Might look a little better for a while, but it's ultimately not gonna last and not gonna matter. Abraham left home, received this new identity. And so as Christians, we don't merely receive it, but we delight in this new identity. We don't delight anymore in, here's my accomplishments. We don't despair over my lack of accomplishments, but I see my righteousness is in Christ, my goodness is in Christ, my value is in Christ. I delight in that. It's like the, the last verse in Before the Throne of God Above, one of, one of my favorite hymns. He says, Before, uh, Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. My righteousness. My identity right there. So as a Christian, your fundamental identity is changed. It becomes Christ is my life. And delighting in that identity is actually what leads to Christian maturity. So we can say then that Christ is my life means I delight in being clothed in Christ's righteousness, not my own. And so there's nothing I can do to make God love me any more or any less. Delighting in Christ as my life means that his death has really freed me from the power of sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And when I delight in my unity with him in his death, I'm seeing I've been freed from this sin. Christ as my life means that I delight in seeing suffering measured by the cross, 
his power measured by the resurrection. And it totally reorients how I see suffering in my own life, how I see what's possible or impossible in my own life. And that identity change is what fuels the behavior change. Guys, the only way, the only way to live by faith in the gap is to have an eye on the faithfulness of God and how he's the one that brings a new identity and how I can then delight in it. So Abraham left home. He received a new identity by faith in who God said he was, not who he said he was or what the culture around him said he was. But he didn't stop there. No, he left home and then Abraham lived as a sojourner. That's our second point. Abraham lived as a sojourner. Maybe you're not familiar with that word sojourner. It merely means a temporary resident. Abraham lived as a temporary resident. Look back at Hebrews 11 in verse 9. Here's what we read. By faith, he being Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. These all died in faith, not having, uh, sorry, I jumped down to verse 13 there, didn't I? Jump to 13 with me, that's good. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They're temporary residents. You think about the idea of temporary resident, think about a babysitter with me. Okay, babysitter's a temporary resident while mom and dad are gone. And basically, if you, if you boil it all the way down, basically babysitters have two jobs, two parts of the mission. One, keep the kids safe and try to have them ha- help them have a good time. Like if the kids are safe and they have a good time, basically the rest doesn't matter. Like it kind of does, but that's, that's the biggest part, right? And so they're looking at it like, well, what if this thing makes a huge mess? Like, what if my girls decide to have a huge glitter party? They're safe and having a good time. Like, may not be what I prefer, but at the end of the day, it's going to be all right. right. What if they stay up there past their bedtime? What if they eat too much sugar? What if they develop all kinds of bad habits? What if they watch too much TV? At the end of the day, you're the babysitter. Are the kids safe? Do they have a good time? You get past that. Like, as a temporary resident, it's okay. We'll figure the rest out later. That, that's basically how it works. There's a There's a few things that we're really supposed to focus on. These are our mission. And then on the rest, there's some more flexibility, right? So in this analogy, Abraham and us, we're like the babysitter. We're temporary residents. We have a specific mission given by God that we should fulfill. And after that, there's a lot of flexibility on what gets done. That's what it means to be a temporary resident. And so Abraham's mission is to go into the unknown and to be a blessing. That's what what God tells him to do. So God calls him to this new place, and he goes, and he says, where? And God says, I'll tell you when you get there. Go to the unknown, be uncomfortable, and just do what I'm telling you to do. And then he's called to be a blessing. And, and being a blessing for Abraham was a pretty broad kind of command. It took all sorts of forms. You remember back through this series, he, he pursued his nephew Lot and rescued him from his sinful ways. He actually had to fight like real battles to rescue him from foreign kings, Being a blessing meant investing his resources and purchasing this land that God had promised. By faith, trusting that this would bring a blessing for the generations to come. It meant trusting God to provide a son that would one day bring a blessing to the nations. Like these are the different things that Abraham did as he's going out into the unknown and being a blessing as God had called him to. 
And all throughout, the burning question week after week has been this. Will God be faithful to provide what Abraham needs while he's on mission? Right, it's one thing to go out to the unknown, to a scary place, to do something uncomfortable, but will God actually be faithful to provide for what I need as I'm doing this scary thing for him? That's what we saw week over week over week over week. Different scenarios, different contexts, but that was basically the fundamental question. And of course, the mission that God gave to Abraham is a little different than the mission that God gave to Christians. But the difference is being set aside for a moment. The call to follow Jesus includes with it a call to be on mission. I'm going to say that again. The difference is aside between us and Abraham. The call to follow Jesus includes with it a call to be on mission. Right, Jesus' final words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, and teaching them to observe all these things that I've commanded you. What is the mission? Go find people who don't know Jesus, tell them about Jesus, when they believe, baptize them, and then teach them to follow everything that Jesus said. Now that, that's good for us, because it, it makes it really clear what, what the mission is. Call Jesus, call to follow Jesus, go make disciples for Jesus. That means his will is not hidden, it's not secret, it's not confusing. Like, keep the kids safe, hope they have a good time. Go find people who don't know about Jesus, tell them about Jesus, when they believe, baptize them, and then teach them to obey him. Like that's all of our missions. It's like we just had, we had uh, the elections this week, right? For those who got elected, what is their mission? To advocate for the party platform that they're with from which the voters elected them. It's very clear what they're supposed to do based on how the majority spoke. And as Christians, we recognize that we are not our own. We are bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6 says. Or according to Galatians 2, says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? God defines in the first point our identity, and now he defines our mission. And without being on mission, if I can just state this frankly, we're just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. That's not good. <laughs> or worse, perhaps not even Christians at all. It was Spurgeon who said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Think about that. So you say, Justin, you want me to live on mission? That sounds scary. You want me to invite my neighbor to church, just walk up to him and say, hey, why don't you come to church with me this week? You want me to ask my unsaved friend to read the Bible with me? Of course it's scary. You don't know what they're going to say. We all have fears in our life, and they grip us each in different ways. But brothers and sisters, where in the world did we get the idea that Christianity was about making us comfortable? That's not something we find in the Bible. I fear for far too many of us. We've subscribed to an American version of Christianity instead of a biblical version of it. We're all going to live in the fear of God or the fear of man. We're living in light of what God says or what man thinks. And if the pattern of your life is to live more in light of what man thinks than what God says, then friend, I'm not sure I can say you're a Christian. You say, Justin, that's kind of intense, that's harsh. 
heavy words maybe. I'm saved, I'm just not a super saint. I'm not a super saint like Abraham. I'm not a super saint like the Apostle Paul. You just read his Bible verses. I'm not a super saint like Spurgeon preaching all these sermons. And I would merely say to you, this is a false dichotomy that the American church has created. There's not this like super saints and the rest. It's Christians follow Jesus on mission. And the pattern of Acts chapter eight, I think makes this really, really clear. If you're not familiar, here's what happens. There's in Jerusalem, there's persecution and the apostles stay. And the lay people get dispersed. They get run out of town because the, the persecution is so, uh, so intense. These are just normal Christians, not super saints. And as they go out telling people about Jesus, wherever they go, this is one of the greatest missionary moments in the history of the church, where the gospel goes forward and converts are being seen all over the known world. It's why as a church, we talk about ourselves as an aircraft carrier, that you come on Sunday, and while we're here together, you receive fuel for the upcoming week and ammunition to go. You're equipped to be on mission. And when you're here, you're gonna receive healing for any wounds you incurred during the week. We want you to receive those three things, fuel, ammo, healing, so that you can be sent out on mission. That's every Christian's job. That's what we're all called to. And the reach for the gospel is infinitely greater in that way. I'm gonna pick up in Acts 11 where we see kind of a narration of what I just described in Acts 8. And I think it's on the screen. Let's take a look at this. As I read, I want you to note the names of the super saints that are mentioned in this evangelistic effort. Here's what we read, starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Did you catch the names of the super saints going out, the conference speakers? It's not there. We don't even know these people's names. It just says, verse 21, and the Lord was with them, whoever they were. They just went proclaiming Jesus as they went. And no doubt they had to have the exact same questions we do, didn't they? God, are you going to be faithful to provide for me as I go? They'd lost their home. That's not most of us now. Certainly they had questions about what people would say as they went. Especially different areas of just fear of moving into the unknown. And they had to trust, will God be faithful to provide for me to live as a temporary resident? You have to ask that. And living by faith in the gap means that we're confident, we're confident in God's faithfulness to equip us for every good work. It means we recognize that God is more interested in your availability than your ability. Will you simply be available to God instead of saying, no, I'm not able, I'm not talented, I'm not gifted enough? Because he doesn't call those who are already equipped. He doesn't look down and see the all-stars and the pro bowlers and the Hall of Famers, and say, yeah, let me get them on my team. No, he calls people, and those whom he has called, he then equips and says, I will be enough. I will take you. Will you trust me to be faithful, to provide for all your needs as you go? Guys, God is at work among us here, at Parkside. He's doing something. 
His word is being proclaimed, yes, here, but his word goes out and it echoes among you. And I hear of stories of people teaching it to each other. Sometimes Christians talking to each other. Sometimes unchristian, or unchristians, uh, unsaved people who aren't Christians yet talking to each other. The question is, will you trust his word to do its work? Will you open it and explain it to somebody else? Will you invite someone to read it with you? This is normal, ordinary Christian mission. This is not what the super saints do. And yes, the world calls it radical. The world says, oh, you're one of those evangelizers. You're one of those proselytizers. You're like all in. You're a fundamentalist. Now, this is just what the Bible calls normal day-to-day Christianity. It looks like normal dudes just inviting their neighbor to church. And when he says no, you keep inviting. You're like the persistent widow, just keeps knocking at the door saying, this is normal Christian living. It's like normal ladies inviting a a coworker to read the Gospel of Mark over lunch. Let's just read a chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Would you do that with me today? It's normal teenagers meeting for breakfast, confessing their sins to each other and praying for one another. That was my story. I was a freshman in high school. A couple of senior guys invited me to meet on Friday mornings at 7 o'clock at the Brownsburg Burger King and eat those little cinnamon roll things and confess our sins to each other and pray for each other and pray for people we knew that weren't Christians yet and then ask each other, have you had a chance to talk to them this week? Like this is normal Christian living. And so to live as a temporary resident means that you put Christian mission at the top of your priority list, much like the babysitter who says, yep, we're going to keep the kids safe and try and help them have a good time, and after that, we'll be okay. And you trust that God will be faithful to provide for you as you go. That's what it means to live as a sojourner like Abraham did. Third, final point, Abraham looked forward. Yes, he left home. He received a new identity by faith. Yes, he lived as a sojourner. He had a mission given by God, but he also looked forward. Here's what Hebrews 11.10 says. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But if you're looking at that verse, I love what that says. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations. In other words, all these other cities that we see they don't really have foundations. They seem secure. Lucas Oil Stadium seems pretty big. There's a lot of bricks on that thing. Seems solid. No other city has a real foundation except the one Abraham was looking forward to. What a picture right there. And for Abraham, in the short term, there was some real reason for despair. It didn't look like God was working. Maybe that feels like your life. Oh, he doesn't feel like God's doing that much right now. Felt that way for Abraham. I want to show you what that was like. Turn back now to Genesis 25 with me. I asked you to put a, um, an envelope or a bookmark in there. Turn back to that. We start to see how things didn't look so promising at the moment for Abraham. He had to look forward by faith. So we pick up in verse 6 of Genesis 25, and here's what we read. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. His offspring go to the east. And throughout Genesis, you've heard us say, moving to the east is a sign of choosing wickedness. They get kicked out of the garden of Eden, Genesis 3, they go to the east. 
right, over and over, Babylon to the east, Tower of Babel to the east. Here they're moving to the east. So, so Abraham's offspring are not making good choices. They're going to the east, they're pursuing what they want. And then we pick up in verse 16 of Genesis 25. Here's what we read. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Pause. There are twelve princes that come from Ishmael. This is just what was promised in chapter 17. And 12 is the number of fullness and completion throughout here. This is not the line of promise. Ishmael is not the chosen son of blessing. Abraham has only one son in the line of promise. So in the short term, the the line of Ishmael that's not blessed has 12 princes who would rule. The line of promise only has one. It doesn't look good in the short term. Like you see it in a couple of different ways really clearly there. So Abraham, if you put yourself into his life and see what he's seeing, he sees his offspring making wicked choices. He sees the line of promise only has one child. He sees the line of rejection, the seed of the serpent, having 12 sons. And not just sons, but princes who would rule. But in the long view, Abraham had great confidence in the faithfulness of God to preserve the seed of the woman to bring a blessing to all mankind just as he had promised. What does faith do? It looks forward, confident in the promises of God even when we don't see it right now. And all throughout Abraham's life, this has sort of been the front burner question. Right now there's no child. 90 years old, 100 years old, no child. Where's this child gonna come from? And how is the child going to be preserved? And Abraham says, I have to look forward. I know God will provide. He's promised he would, but I sure don't see it right now. And he gets to Genesis 22, when he's on the mountain. He's gonna offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And the Lord provided a sacrifice to preserve the life of the child. And God says, you were faithful to provide a child, faithful to preserve the child, and on the basis of your faithfulness, I can continue looking forward. And now we come to chapter 25, sort of putting the whole thing together here. And he's looking forward to the day where his offspring will no longer be dispersed, no longer making wicked choices, but when his offspring will be regathered, living as God's people in God's place and under God's rule. And Genesis 25 gives us this like just this whiff of hope, like it's barely a scent. And I hadn't even seen what I'm about to tell you until about Wednesday of this week. It was super cool. So I want you to look back at Genesis 25, and I want to point something out that uh, is just a striking uh, striking truth. I'm going to read the first four verses. Here's what it says. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asarim, Latushim, Lumim. Sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Did you get it? No, no one saw the cool part there? Okay, I didn't see it either. That's okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to circle three names or underline them or highlight them or whatever you do in your Bible. Verse two, I want you to circle Midian. That's right after, was it Jokshan, Medan, Midian. And then verse three, I want you to circle Sheba. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. And then verse four, 
I want you to circle ephah. Midian in verse 2, Sheba in verse 3, ephah in verse 4. Going to be really important names as Abraham is looking ahead to his offspring, no longer being dispersed in wickedness, but being regathered as worshipers. Those three names get picked up in Isaiah chapter 60. That is this prophecy looking ahead to Christ. We see it on the screen. I'm going to read six verses from Isaiah 60. And, and as I'm reading, you come to these names at the end, the ones you just circled. But just picture the scene that's being described here. It says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Here it is. Be ready. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Whoa, do you see what's happening here? Do you see this? The wicked sons of Abraham, once dispersed, are now regathering and what are they bringing? Gold and frankincense on a multitude of camels? <laughs> it's amazing. Do you see the foretaste of what's happening at the birth of Jesus? The offspring of Abraham are now being united as worshipers of Jesus, the true son of Abraham. It's happening. Whoa, great is the faithfulness of God to do what he said he would do. And of course Abraham didn't see it at the time. It's just like dropped in there in Isaiah 60, like a little nugget for us, just to remind us, yes, Abraham didn't see it, but God is still at work. He's doing what he always said he would do. He's keeping his promises. So we cling to his faithfulness. So as we wrap up this morning, and we put a kind of a bow on the whole sermon, remember this, God was faithful he was faithful to send the perfect sacrifice so that you could have a new identity by faith. Changes who you are. Behavior change flows out of that. And he's faithful to sustain you on mission as you go. He'll provide everything you need. He doesn't call you without equipping you. You feel insignificant or insecure or like you don't have what it needs. You're probably right, you don't, but God does have it and he will give it to you in your moment of need. And he'll be faithful to continue gathering his people from all languages and tribes and tongues and nations to worship the lamb who was slain but forever will reign. Hallelujah. Praise be to God because great is the faithfulness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you <laughs> just in awe and at wonder of who you are, of your faithful provision for years and decades and centuries and millennia. You always keep your word.
You always do what you said. Sometimes we see it, and sometimes we don't in the short-term picture. But you're always at work. So we ask for your grace to strengthen us, to delight in this new identity that you've provided through the shed blood of Jesus. We ask for your grace that we would live as temporary residents to know this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. And we would be committed to the mission you've given to us, to go and make disciples of all nations. We ask you would give us grace to look forward to the grandest celebration of all, where one day we will gather around your throne and worship you with your people who were dispersed and are now regathered in the joy of seeing you exalted on the throne as the true king where we can be your people in your place and under your rule. Help us to live in view of that reality, the only city with foundations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us before, you know.